Okay, just a quick reminder up on the screen, check it out. Two dates upcoming in December. Uh, the first one is the first Saturday in December. And we'll be lining up probably around 11, a little bit right around 11, usually, right around 11 o'clock. We'll be marching in the Christmas parade. And as far as we know, at this point, we'll be having the manger scene again and throwing candy and passing out flyers to tell everybody about Jesus. And so it's mostly for fun, but it's mostly for Jesus. The cool thing is, when you're serving Jesus, it's always fun, even when it sucks. That's the cool thing. Amen. He gets to make it into something awesome, even when it's not there yet. All right. Uh, his... Love Reaching Music Program, Sunday, December 18th. Don't miss that one. You may be getting enlisted if you have not already. Uh, if you are willing to be enlisted, make sure that the music team knows so that they can uh, have lots of readings and other parts and things that they're sending you. This is not this is not your average Christmas program. This is truly what they're putting together is a work that really glorifies God, and that's a lot of pressure uh, for them and for us. And we will come prepared and ready to truly glorify God, uh, His love reaching. And that's the, the 18th of December. There are some other dates in your bulletin. Don't miss them and keep your ears peeled because we've got a lot going on. This is the season we always celebrate Jesus' resurrection. Without the resurrection, truth is, what we have is nothing. Okay? But in this season especially, we focus on the fact that God sent His own Son into the world. Amen. Talk a little bit about that in the message today and what it means to us. Uh, but the bottom line is, a great gift was given. Resurrection is awesome. His death is payment. The payment that he probably wishes, well, we know, he wishes he didn't have to pay. Because he prayed that right before he was arrested. He there was another way. And yet there was no other way. He surrendered to God's will. And uh, resurrection was the result. That's awesome. But his gift of his birth is awesome, and that's what we celebrate at Christmas time. That's what really Christmas is all about. All right? We're going to pray together briefly at this time. Yes. Sorry, announcement. If you are on the budget team, uh, I'm going to be coming around for scheduling for that today and try to get us coordinated on a date. And team leaders, expect your homework this week. Homework? Yes. We'll, we'll, uh... Will the team leader meeting be early enough to turn in our homework, or do we need to turn it in ASAP? Um, two or second, second. Yeah, I don't think that will be early enough. It will or won't. It, sh- it will not. It will not. I'm trying so not to do the homework will be, the homework will be <laughs> ASAP. Yeah. So you get it, it's due yeah. the next day. You can literally take right. a picture right. and send it. Yeah. Yeah, do fine. like the next day right after that. All right. So, yeah. all right. Sounds good. So let's pray together and then we'll worship a little more. Father in heaven, you are an awesome God who loves us so. Your testimony of how much you love us and what you've done to save us is um, incredible, overwhelming. At the same time, it's fulfilling, and it reminds us daily that there is something more than the sufferings and the struggles and even the happiness and successes, but that there is something more. You, of course, are something more, and you have sent something more, and you have been something more, and you continue to work something more in us. And at the same time, Lord, we recognize that we've, we've failed you in ways. we failed to talk about Jesus. we failed to step up and love somebody who desperately needed it, or to, to make a sacrifice, or to give, or just to do the right thing. And our time correctly. And we ask your forgiveness for that. We're thankful that it's available through Jesus. We know that upon the cross, as he was suffering, and as he was headed to the cross, he was recognizing that we would not always do the right thing. And he paid the price so that we could be forgiven. 
We ask you now to take over this service and lead us in God. We know that you are with us. Those of us who are here today who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we realize that you are with us every moment of every day, the good times and the bad. So we know that you are with us. And so when we pray, Lord, be with us today, it's praying for what we already have. Lord, we know that you govern all things on the earth. That you're in charge of everything, set up the borders of the countries and the places where people will live, all so that men could grope around and find you and then figure out you were never very far away in the first place. That's true. So you've orchestrated our being here. We're in this chair, on this floor, because you set it up. And so now, Lord, we ask you to use it for what you intended to use it for. Glorify yourself. Raise up your people. Teach us. Let us grow. Let us be strengthened. Let us overcome as we worship you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, so we're going to stand up for this one. You don't need me to tell you to stand up. You can stand up at any time. But if you would please stand with us for the next two. And children, this is your one song warning. Don't disappear. show called Let's Make a Deal. Everybody comes in costume and they wear all kinds of goofy costumes and then and then their names get randomly called and they come down onto the audience and the host of the show has a microphone and they have doors up there that they sometimes do or curtains or whatever. And he'll say, I'll give you a hundred bucks or you can have what's behind door number three. Right? And it's Let's Make a Deal. And they, they always have to choose. And is there really any good reason to choose? I mean, a door could have good stuff behind it, but occasionally you open the door and go, and you get nothing, right? There's no big whammy, nothing there at all. Or you get something dumb, like, here's a collection of funguses and molds, instead of a thousand dollars, right? There's really no reason whatsoever to choose what's behind the door. And what are the people in the audience doing the whole time? They're like, while you're deciding what the deal is, I take the 200 bucks cash or I take what's behind the door or what's in the box or whatever. You know, like, the door, the door. They don't know any better than the other person. I mean, they're all shouting, take the door, take the door. No, take the cash, take the cash. And the person that's up there inevitably looks to the person that, that came with them, right? Who is currently sitting in the chair or standing there dressed like a toaster or Winnie the Pooh or wearing... Their, their Mickey Mouse ears on the side of their head or whatever. And they look at that person for the wisdom. Should I take the door? Should I take the 250 bucks cash that the guy's handing me? Or whatever. And finally they decide one or the other and then it's really kind of like roll your dice, move your mice, whatever happens. It is what it is, right? It's either a boop, 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 you get nothing or you get beautiful vacation to Vienna or a new car. Or, but there's no reason. There's lot, no logical reason why to choose one or the other. So when you're outside standing there dressed like a toaster or Winnie the Pooh, 
hoping to get in, and it isn't everybody that gets in, right? And you go, they come from all over the world to do this, really all over the U.S., but some people come from all over the world. Well, they're standing in line. They're just hoping that they're going to get a chance to decide to, whether to take the door or the box or the cash, knowing that there really is no logical reason to take one or the other, but they're hoping to get in that moment in time in which they can just randomly choose. In worst case scenario, they could take the 500 bucks, right? But then when they're standing there, do I take the or do I go? Or what's behind? Door number three. I just don't know. What do I do? I just don't know. And then they choose, and quite often they get beep, 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 and they get nothing. Because there's no reason to choose one or the other. And when you think, you always think, you know, like, dude offers me 500 bucks, I'm just going to take it. I don't care if there is a car behind the door. The chance that there's a beep, 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 beep behind the door is too much for me. I'm just going to take the 500 bucks. Who doesn't want 500 bucks, right? But when you're standing there debating between the 500 bucks and the door, and you take it, and it's no, sometimes. We'll talk to you today about the deal. You want a good job? Who doesn't? Want a bunch of money? Who doesn't? Want good health? Who doesn't? Are there things that you can do to make that happen? Mm, you can make it more likely, right? But if you've ever been stricken with a serious illness, out of the blue. It wasn't because you didn't take enough vitamin C or didn't eat foods with a certain mineral in it or whatever. But out of the blue, an illness hits you and you're like, oh no, now I'm sick. I, did I do anything to get sick? Then you know that you can do everything in your power to try to be healthy, but ultimately, time and chance happens to all people and you might not be healthy. Can you do the right thing to get a new job? Yeah, you could do it. Take a lot of steps. You could train yourself. You could go to college. You could get some letters behind your name, like an MA, like an MD, you know, an RN, something behind your name. And that make it a lot more likely that you'd have a good job in this lifetime. But if you've ever seen somebody who was in a situation where they had a lot of education or training, whatever, but they just couldn't seem to get a job in their field, or maybe they got sick, or maybe somebody in their family died and now they're struggling with that. Bad things happen to good people. It happens. And so the letters after your name, they do not by any means guarantee you a good job. So you can do all kinds of things to get a good job, but you may not get a good job. So life kind of begins to feel a little bit like a crapshoot. It's like a little bit like, do I take the 500 bucks that I'm offered now, or do I go for what's behind door number three? And so often, the truth is, it feels like no matter what we choose, we get the beep, 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 beep. Because life can be rough. But here's the deal. Here's the deal that Jesus offered. Luke chapter 22. And Jesus is literally on the eve of being arrested to be crucified. He's with his disciples that night, having what is probably going to be his last meal on earth. And while he's there, he took a cup and he gave thanks and he said, take this and share it amongst yourself. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, say it. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, 
This cup which I poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant. See, a lot of times we get confused. You know, this here is a Bible. You ever seen one of these before? It's got 66 books in it. 39 in what's called the Old Testament. 27 what's called the New Testament. And we think it's like the Old Bible and the New Bible. A lot of people in the world think this is the Old Bible and the New Bible. But the Old Testament and the New Testament is not the Old Bible and the New Bible. Now, it's true, they had the Old Testament for a long time before the New Testament was ever written. It really wasn't written until it was written in, by, and for, and to the new church. That's the New Testament. But it's not because it's the Old Bible and it's the New Bible. Because the word testament or covenant, they both are the same word, means deal. This book, this Bible, is 39 books of the Bible, including Psalms, which is really, really long. A lot of prayers and Psalms in there. Genesis, which is really long. 39 books of the Bible about the old deal. And 27 books of the Bible about the new deal. The question is, do you want the old deal or the new deal? The old deal is this. If you always do right and never do anything wrong, if you never sin against God and follow all the rules that God had set down, if you were the perfect human being and walked a sinless life, then you would not be worthy of death and you would live eternally forever with God. Now, the outcome is awesome. But the path, the first part, what you got to do is just not possible. In the New Deal, in the New Testament, we hear... Paul wrote this. He said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For that reason, God orchestrated the new deal. Now, here's the new deal. What is the work that God asks of people? To believe in the one whom he has sent. If you will believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, call out for salvation. You say, okay, God, save me through Jesus, your Son. And don't kid yourself. In the old deal, did Abraham sin? He did. But did he trust in a way that God was eventually going to make? He did. And in the old deal, you could figure out that there was a new deal coming. And if you trusted in the new deal instead of the old deal, you could still be saved. And that's what Abraham did. It's what Noah did. And we hope it's what Adam did. We hope it's what they all did. All the We know it's what Enoch did, right? Because God just took him home. So that's it. We're done. We're out of here. And he didn't die. So we know there were some, but we believe David and Abraham... These people believed in the new deal. They trusted that God was going to do what God said he was going to do even long after Abraham was dead. He trusted, I believe you'll do what you say you're going to do. And God saw it and counted it as righteousness. So for him, the old deal led to the new deal. And for you and for me, we realize we have sin. It leads to the new deal. So here's the deal. Will you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Will you allow the payment that he paid to be the payment for your sin? Because you can't pay it. Let's be realistic. You cannot pay it. It would take you an eternity away from God, which the Bible calls hell, in order to pay for it. And that's if it was only one lie or one hatred. It would take an eternity. You can't pay for it. But Jesus did pay for it. So will you allow the payment that he paid to stand for you? That's the new deal. And if you'll believe and receive, then you get the new deal, which is eternity in heaven with God and abundant life now here on earth. Now here's the blessing as we're singing that song. Sometimes abundant life looks like you lay it out flat on your back, barely able to get up, praising God. Sometimes abundant life looks like you're in so much pain, you can't, you're in more pain than you've ever been in before, and you can't believe where you are right now, praising God. 
Sometimes abundant life looks like, man, they broke my heart. What he or she said or what they did, that just tears me up inside. Like, I, I rip my heart, uh, like the line from uh, uh, The Night's Tale, tore my heart into little pieces. And yet, praising God. Sometimes it looks like that. And for somebody to say, how can there be suffering in the world, or how can that be bad under the new deal, why, if God has truly forgiven us and loves us, how could there be still suffering? They're discounting eternity. They're forgetting that life is more about then than it is about now. If you live 120 years here now, it'll be the blink of an eye compared to what you'll live then. And the only question is, you take the deal that Jesus Christ is offering, or will you take what's behind door number three? <laughs> to remember this for always, Jesus said, this is the new covenant. And he gave us the bread, which represents his body, which would be broken, literally, not his bones broken, but destroyed for us. He was killed. And he gave us the, the juice, to represent the blood, which was poured out on the ground, literally poured out on the ground for us. So that we will never forget that his sacrifice ordains very clearly the new deal. And so today... We're going to take the Lord's Supper, and we, through the Lord's Supper, remember the new deal. Now, you may be here today, you may have some question about this, and your question might go like this. Do I have any place in the Lord's Supper if I have not believed in Jesus? Is this for me? That might be your question. And the answer to that question is, for you, it'll just be like an interesting experience. Maybe something to think about. But for those of us who are in the room today, who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, when we're taking the bread in our hearts and in our minds, we are remembering that body which was crushed for us. When we're drinking the juice, we are remembering that blood which was poured out for us. I can't, I can't envision. If you've ever seen the movie The Passion of Christ, you can envision what it looked like when he'd be whipped within an inch of his life. But I have never seen that movie. Do you know that there was a woman who watched the, the beating of Christ and the Passion of Christ and died while she was watching it? And, that it, and on the corner of the court, it said she died of a broken heart. That was her death. That was her cause of death. I've never watched that movie. And I don't ever want to see it and be in person, see anybody ever whipped within an inch of their life and then crucified. I don't want to see that. I don't want that image in my head. But I know that that horrible event ushered in this new deal. And I don't ever want to forget it, even though I never want to see it. And so if you're here today as a believer... This is nothing less than remembering for you. But if you're here today as not a believer, then you have two choices. You can go forward, not a believer, still searching, still trying to figure it out, still trying to decide, am I going to be a Christian or not? You can do that. In which case, you can take part in this. But for you, it's just going to be an interrupting experience. Just something you haven't done before, maybe, or a little different. And then, when you are saved, once you have accepted Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, then you're going to see the difference. You're going to realize the significance and meaning of it power of it, the effect of it, and what it does in your heart. I'll ask the uh, deacon and yoke fellows to come forward at this time, and we're going to prepare. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, Miss Sherry and uh, let's see, Caitlin, would you come and help Miss Sherry? With her? Thank you so much.
Alright, and I'll ask the deacon yoke fellows to come forward to help us <clears throat> to pray over and to help us distribute. Now someone would say, um, that night he took the bread first, you know, and to eat the bread. If you've ever eaten bread without eating a drink, if you've ever had the Lord's Supper before, you probably have eaten the bread. You go, man, I wish I had that juice right now, right? But we don't pass the juice out until after we bless it. I want you to remember that during that time when you've eaten the bread, and there's a few minutes in between there, and you're going, man, I wish I had a little bit of juice to wash that down. That is nothing compared to what it was like to be those hours on the cross. Last hour, you can tell me that you prayed for us and blessed the bread today. Well, Lord, thank you for uh, this another day, this, this this time that we uh, set aside to come to you, uh, our church, uh, to worship you. For this time also, Lord, will we take a <coughs> sidestep and uh, remember what you did for us on the cross, and not only on the cross but in your life, <coughs> and that uh, your body was broken. And he bled and died for us. And it was already explained to our pastor why. Uh, raising a new covenant. And Lord, we thank you for that. We just ask you, Lord, to uh, help us with this time as we remember your sacrifice, remember your life, remember what you did for us. And if it was, you did it all for us, but you did it each and individually, one for us. So uh, just thank you, Lord, as we take this bread, just ask you to bless it. As they come around, take one. Do not eat it yet. Hold on to it until we all eat at the same time. sure if they fully understood the implications, but on that night, just before his arrest, Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Brother Tim, would you ask a blessing upon the Jews? Lord, we thank you so much for what you have done for us, that you even consider us. price to be paid for sin and it's a price that's paid one way or another and thank you so much that through your blood that price can be paid we want everyone in the world to know and to accept that so never let us forget let's always be a reminder of 
of your love. And, uh, you have paid that price for us, and we can pay it. So come around, taste one juice. Please be careful with it. Grape juice does stain. Also, this represents the blood of Jesus. So, kind of important stuff here. <laughs> Don't drink it yet. Wait until we're all drinking together. I tend to think that the symbolism of the juice might have been easier to see because blood poured out and wine poured out look very similar. But that night Jesus took that juice and maybe poured some from one cup to another and he said, this is my blood which is shed for you. Take and drink in remembrance of me. When they were through, they went out singing a hymn. Now we are blessed. Because we already have a couple of hymns scheduled today. I'm not sure they had one scheduled. But they were so praising God because they, they just knew something awesome was in the offing of what God was doing. So as you worship today, these last couple of songs, remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Remember the eternal life paid for and the resurrection of our Lord, which is no less real in us. We too are resurrected for those of us who believe. Honor him today with the remainder of your worship.
It, happen, it happens occasionally when I'm writing a sermon that I'll get like partway through or I'll hit a certain point or maybe even get to the end of the sermon and I'll just kind of be like blown away. I'm like, whoa, that's something. And I know, you know, those things don't come from God. Or they don't come from me. They come from God because I wouldn't do it. <laughs> I'm mean, like, no, I wouldn't have gone there. That's not the way I would have gone. And this is one of those. So it also happens sometimes in the scripture that there's something that's so painfully simple that we fail to grasp it, that we struggle with it. Because the truth is, if something is not complex in our world, if it's not a little bit intricate, I got some individual parts, or if it doesn't work a certain way, if it doesn't kind of amaze us, then we tend to kind of gloss over it. But when it's so point blank and direct, sometimes we've got to complicate it or intricate it a little bit in order for us to go, yeah, I want to dig in. I want to figure out what that means exactly. And that's exactly what happened with this scripture. So these verses that we're going to look at, I'm going to try, I'm not promising you anything because it isn't really part of the sermon, but I'm going to try as we go through to keep the simple, okay? But then we're going to go a little bit intricate or a little bit deep and then kind of come back from there. And and that way we really see the value of what it is that God's trying to say. All right. So if you'll grab your Bibles and go with me, maybe a little who to holler, amen, something to first John chapter four. Thank you, man. We did that well today. Thank you so much for those of you who participate in that little object lesson. That is simply a reminder to us that from here on out, it's in the Lord's hands. He's going to say what he's going to say, and I hope you're going to listen to him. In fact, if I stand up here one Sunday and preach for 40 minutes and don't say anything that God says, then you just ignore me and listen to the Lord. You have my permission to do so. Okay? Not that you need it. (laughs) All right? So here we go. It's 1 John chapter 4. It says, uh, and the first part of this we're going to look at, what it means, okay? So the first thing I want you to see is what it means. W-I-M, what it means, all right? Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So right away, we know we're talking about spiritual warfare, and we're, we're, like what happens inside a person, the things they think, things they think might be true, the ways that they're pushed or led to believe. So you might have a thought that comes in your head that you're not sure if it's your thought, if it came from somewhere else or whatever. And this is how you test it. He's going to say, test every spirit. Everything that comes on you and pushes you in a certain direction, test it. Check it. Verify it might be a good way to say it. Because many false prophets have gone out of the world. In other words, there's going to be a lot of things talking, and a false prophet might come right up and talk to you. He might be a human being, and he might say, I want to tell you what God says, and he might be lying. But also, a false prophet might start a TV station, or a radio station, or a newspaper, might write an article, might write a textbook, might teach in a school. So you literally could get this from anywhere, any angle, at any time. A teaching that is not of God. He says, false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. So here is going to be clear. Now he's going to say, this is where the simple comes in. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So in other words, if someone someone or something questions or kind of casts dispersions on the fact that Jesus Christ was the Son of God who came in the flesh, then that's something you can dismiss or you can rule out, right? You can verify that as bad. But if it does confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God, then that can be from God. So basically, you've got an easy sort. And this is where most people go with this passage of Scripture, and they kind of just stop right there. It's an easy sort for me. Basically, if I look at something, 
A classic example of reading a textbook, reading a magazine article, listening to a radio, whatever, and it seems to say that maybe Jesus wasn't who he said he was, or Jesus didn't come from God, or Jesus didn't die on the cross for sins, or something like that. Very simple. I can throw that out. I can just go, forget it. That's not good. It doesn't matter what it goes on to say. It may go on to say, well, Jesus wasn't, but you really need to help the poor. You really need to do good works. You really do good things. Feed the hungry. Clothe the, 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 the shivering. Uh, medicine the, the sick. Uh, do medical work all your life until you're so old and decrepit that you can't work at all anymore. It may have all kinds of good teaching that comes after that, but if it doesn't say that Jesus Christ was the Son of God come in the flesh, you can dismiss it. Doesn't mean you can dismiss doing those good works, but you're going to get the teaching to do those good works from somewhere else because the, t- the spirit that's bringing the truth there or the supposed truth is not true. So just saying, it's an easy way to know what to dismiss. There may be some things that are a little more confusing, but an easy way to know what to dismiss is if it does not recognize that Jesus is who he said he was, if it does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and is from God, then it is not of God. Because God certainly did that, and he's not going to say otherwise. Now verse 3, and it says, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. In other words, don't overconfuse it. Like you've read some fiction books or whatever, make the Antichrist out to be one big bad guy who's got special powers. Don't, don't get into that. This is a teaching that is contrary to Christ. That's all it is. It goes against Jesus. It can be delivered by any human being. It can be delivered by any method at any time. If it goes against Christ, you don't want anything to do with it. And that's what he's saying, that a a spirit that does not confess Jesus is not of God. It is the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming. Now it is already in the world. That spirit, that idea against Jesus was already present in the world when this was written. Verse 4, he says, You are from God, little children, and, and have overcome them those spirits that are the Antichrist, the Antichrists, if you want to say it that way, the teachings that are against God, you have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he is in the world. Now, the simple teaching on this is, when a a bad teaching like that comes in, a false teaching, I can dismiss it, and I can be successful in dismissing, dismissing it because Jesus is in me. That's true, okay? But that's the simple teaching. And it's what people tend to gloss over. So for day to day, we don't activate Jesus in us or allow Jesus to show us what to dismiss. We just kind of plod through life and don't really worry about it. We don't test every spirit like we're supposed to. We don't use the simple standard of what is appropriate and what is not, which we just read. And we don't allow Jesus to kick those things out. Too simple for us. Okay? True, but too simple. Verse 4 said again, You are from God, little children, and have become and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But it goes on. He says, They are from the world. That's talking about those false teachings, the evil spirits, the teachings of the Antichrist, those who, the false prophets. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world. And the world listens to them. They have an audience. In fact, they're gaining a huge audience, right? Verse 6. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. So when we teach what God would have us to teach, a person will listen. Here's the surest way you can know whether somebody's from God or not. Teach them something from God. If they want nothing to do with it, then you can tell they're not from God. Not saying you should judge their salvation, but they're not coming from a perspective of the kingdom of God and you're basically casting your pearls before swine because they're not going to hear it because they don't want to hear what God says. Okay? So instead of coming up with your own ideas, come out of what God says, that's an easy test. Again, that's not what we're after. We're looking at something more complex. Verse 6. 
It says, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Okay? So those that first part there showed us what we know, what is the spirit of truth, what is the spirit of error. What it means. When someone comes to you with a teaching, when someone comes to you with something, that, an idea, what it means. Does it recognize that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and died on the cross for sins? Does it recognize the gospel simply put? If not, have nothing to do with it. Know that you can have nothing to do with it through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us. You can do that. He is living in you now as a saved person if you are saved and you can cast them, those things away. Also, listen to what God has to say and we will be a p- people that listen to each other as we speak what God has to say. All of that is simply put, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. But I don't think we got the answer of what it means. Most people stop there because that's a division in the chapter. Let's go a little further. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Okay, so now we're being given direction on how to live. We're supposed to love each other. Now this is one another talking about amongst Christians. Okay, This is written to a church. It's written to a church, so we should love the people in this room. If there are people in this room that you don't love, you have a problem. We have a command from God. Now, I'm not talking about love like Mary. I'm talking about love like Jesus loved, a sacrificial, self, uh, self-sacrificing love of another person. You're willing to give up something for somebody else's blessing. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. In other words, if you don't love that way, You don't have a promise that you are born of God and know God. Verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God. Okay, now, in other words, if you don't love at all, you don't know God. Okay? For God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Now, notice, how did we test the evil spirits? Going back to the first few verses, we tested them by whether or not they accepted, by whether or not they professed that Jesus Christ had come into the world to die for mankind. All right. So now you've got these false prophets, evil spirits, antichrists, whatever, men that have an agenda, whatever, and they're teaching something that teaches the opposite of somehow or other that Jesus came into the world. Okay, That he was God, that he came into the world and died for sins. But here it says, this is how God's love says in verse 10, in this is love. Go back to verse 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. So I ask you then, what does it mean or what are they about when they are trying to teach that that's not true? Well, it means that they don't know love. They don't know God. right? They're not teaching something on behalf of God. In fact, they're teaching the opposite. And when you don't know God and you don't know love, it's very easy to have an agenda. The truth is, I find it very easy myself to have an agenda. I like to earn money. I like to save money. I like to spend money in a godly, just way. I like to have fun and fellowship with other believers and sometimes with with non-believers, as long as we're not doing something that makes me feel like I'm turning against God. So like I don't go to the bar. Uh, I don't lust after images on the screen. I don't watch any of that stuff, uh, or as I sure try not to. Occasionally it slips by the buffers and I, I see it before I can turn it off or whatever, but as a general rule. So, but I find that I have an agenda, even though my main agenda should be loving God, 
It's easier for me to have an agenda. And if I know God and have the love of God in me, and I find it easy to have an agenda, then I think I can safely assume that those who do not know God, that do not love God, can easily have an agenda. Okay? They're out for something, they're after something, and they're going to teach you whatever they need to teach you or get you to do whatever they can get you to do in order to get to something. Now, put the framework of TV, streaming TV, social media, every, everywhere that we're getting all this direction from, what are they all trying to do? Right? Every TikTok, every reel you've ever watched, every social media post you ever, every time you ever pushed the like button, it was posted there to get you to push the like button. For the young people in the room, they know that the reason people are trying to get a million hits on TikTok, because once you have a million hits, you can monetize your TikTok and make money. So they're going to do whatever they need to do to get that reel out there, to get that TikTok out there. So a bunch of people will push the like button so that they can turn around and make money on you. Okay? TV commercials. It's all about, you need this, right? This will make you slimmer, prettier, it'll make you taller, which doesn't actually happen, by the way. It'll make you, it'll make you smarter. You'll play our app and you'll, and you'll have better brain power, right? And all of that is about monetizing the message. It's all about making money. Now, money's not the only false god that's out there, because a lot of people with money kind of usually comes power, right? So people have an agenda. And the message, they need to have a message that is anti-Christ, because if the message were about Christ, that would be teaching you to be free from their agenda. To rather love one another, rather than to be moved by the agenda of the Antichrist message. So the first part that you'll find, it's easy, simple, is if the message says something about Jesus didn't come in the flesh, he didn't love you, wasn't the messenger of God's love, didn't sacrifice on the cross, that kind of thing, if something like that, then you can bet they have an agenda and they're trying to move you in a certain direction. That's the simple part. The more complex part is, the message of God, very clear, is Jesus Christ was from God and died on the cross for sins. He was and and is, as much as we remember him clearly, the very embodiment of the love of God. That's the message. It said, by this the love of God was manifested. In other words, made clear or brought out publicly. Brought into reality. By this, we could clearly see it. There it was. Not a light shone on it. That's glorified. This is like, it was always there, and now it's been revealed. The curtain has been pulled back. The love of God is manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. That's what it means. The crucifixion and the Spirit of Christ is telling us God loves us. It's very simple, very easy to say to somebody, God loves them. You could say God loves them and then walk away and do nothing for them. Jesus couldn't do that. He didn't say God loves you and then do nothing. He said God loves you and then went to the cross. And I submit to you without getting ahead of myself, he was setting an example for us. Verse 10. And this is love. Not that we loved God. Don't kid yourself. The best embodiment of your of the love between you and God is not you loving God. Okay. In fact, we often say, I love you, God. Say, Lord, I love you so much. God, I love you. I praise you and like that. And then go on and do things that say the exact opposite. Saying that we love God and living in the opposite would be a lie. But he says, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So get it. This is the love of God, clearly manifested. He loved us. This is love. He loved us and sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Propitiation means the payment. And in this part, in specific, it is a payment that you could not pay. 
And so he paid the price that we could not pay by sending his son to die on the cross. He loved us and sent his son to, to be the propitiation for our sins. You see why the world might want to cover that up? Okay, now we're transitioning. First we had what it means, and now we're transitioning to what, what it means means. Okay? So we already know it means that God loves us. But what does that mean? What does it mean that God loves us? When we say what the resurrection, what the crucifixion means, I say God loves us. What does that mean? What, what it means, means. We're moving on. Now we've got W-W-I-M-M. What, what it means, means. Okay? So we're going a little deeper, getting a little more complex. Hang with me here. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What does it mean that Jesus Christ came as the propitiation for sins and died on the cross for us? That God's love was so manifested by the crucifixion of Christ? It means we ought to love one another. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12 says, No one has beheld God at any time. None of us have ever been in the throne room of God. At least not yet. We will be one day. If we have loved Jesus and followed our Lord, no one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. It's made complete, not perfected like perfect, but think of complete, the whole love of God, right? If we love one another, God abides in us. He lives in us and his love is perfected in us. 13, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. This is how you can know if you are walking in Christ or not. Wow, don't you want to know that? Don't I want to know? I want to know if I'm walking in Christ. This is how I can know. Abide is a great thing. I want to live in Jesus so I can live eternally and so on. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is in us. If you put the Holy Spirit in us, back it up one verse. It says, no one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And if his love is perfected, and his love is perfected in us. God's love is perfected in you and he lives in you when you love one another. Simple one-step plan. What it, me- what, what it means means we must love one another. It says, and we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. See, we know that God sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Therefore, we know His love. And what that means is that we must love one another. 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in Him and He in God. So bring it back around to the beginning of the chapter where it's talking about teachings that let's say that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, but, right? Or that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, but, whatever. It's, it's got to include. We can talk about love all day long. This is the caution. This verse is the caution. He's saying, yes, God loved you and you should love one another. But don't get so busy loving one another that you forget that God loved you. Right? Because there is that. There's this idea of, well, if you loved me, you would never tell me what I did wrong. You would never correct me and set me on the right course. Right? You would never stand up for right in my presence because that is hate toward me. And none of that is true. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in Him and He in God. So we have what it means. And now we have what, what it means means. Alright? We've gone two tiers deeper. But we've got another one yet. 
Now we're going to ask ourselves what it means to mean what it means means. Whoa, wait a minute, I got confused there. Did you? Okay? In other words, we ask ourselves, what does it mean? Jesus Christ died on the cross. What does it mean? It means God loves us. God is the very embodiment of love. Jesus is a demonstration and a manifestation of the love of God. Then we said, okay, what does it mean that it means that? What, what it means, means. Alright? So now, we said, the love of God is like that. That's what the love of God is like. Jesus said, if the love of God is like that, then if you're going to love like God loved or be God's people, then you must love one another. Right? And now we're going to ask ourselves, what does it mean for us? What are we supposed to do to live out what it means, means? If that's what it means, what are we supposed to do about it? Alright? And we're going to read verses 16 to 21. 16 says this. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. In other words, I know God loves me. Remember when I talked about during the Lord's Supper time, talking about being on your back and you're, you're totally wiped out. You've got nothing left. Maybe it's pain or sickness or depression that's taking you down. And yet you're praising God and have joy. That is possible because of verse 16. And we know. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. If God has love for you and you know that, then no matter what you go through or what you experience, you have every reason to praise God and to love Him back and to have joy in your heart. You can have joy in your heart. Now, your flesh can be falling apart. Your finances are in the gutter. Your whatever, Everything is wrong. Lost a loved one. Lost a job. Everything can be wrong. And yet, if you know the God of the universe who created all knows exactly where you are and exactly what you're going through and loves you just the way you are in that moment, then you have reason to praise Him. You have reason to have joy. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love and walks in, remains in love, abides in God. And God abides in him. This is, again, a kind of like a test verse. Verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Okay? So in other words, what does 17 say? By this, love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Don't you want to be confident before God? I know how you can be confident before God. Always do the right thing. Is anyone paying attention? That's how you can be confident before God. Always do the right thing. How's that going to work for you? It's like a good plan? Never make a mistake. Then you'll be confident before God. That's the plan, right? That's what we're going to do. From now on, let's just never make a mistake. Let's live faithfully for God forever and never make a mistake. And then when we come before God, we'll have confidence before God. Well, thankfully, that is not what the Bible just said. Back it back up. That's absolutely right. He says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in Him and He in God. So it's about your confession of who Jesus is and that makes Him Lord of your life. And it says in 16, And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. By this, love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. In other words, you will have confidence in the day of judgment if you walk in God and God walks in you, which will be accomplished by, wait for it, loving one another. 
There is literally only... Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. The fulfillment of the... Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. The fulfillment of the law was Jesus on the cross, which was God's embodiment of love that manifested His love toward us. You following this now? So God, Jesus fulfilled the law and then set out what it means, what what it means means, and what it means to mean what it means means. In other words, this is what we do now. This is who we are now. We don't stop lying. You can stop lying and should, by the way, because lying is not very loving. But that's not what it's about anymore. Now it's about loving people. I don't lie to people because I love them. And when I don't lie to them, it is an expression of my love for them, which flows out of the fact that I know that God loves me. He is walking in me and I am him. And God wouldn't lie to them. God doesn't lie. When I feed people, I don't feed people because they need fed or because my conscience is pricked or because I have more money than they do and I want to feel guilty about the fact that I'm wealthy and they're not or that I'm middle class and they're sub-low. That's not why we do it. We do it because we love people. And in loving them, God abides in us and we abide in God. And just as Jesus died on the cross, we show the love of God toward them. By this, love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Listen, and we'll come back to this at the conclusion. Don't miss this. It's huge. It's funny because it's kind of like an afterthought for John, but it is almost the most important verse or half a verse in the whole chapter. Okay? By this, love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, as he is, so also are we in this world. Now, I want to just ask you very plainly, how's Jesus? How is Jesus? Well, let's see, he was crucified, but he's not crucified anymore. By the way, that's why Baptists use the cross as a symbol a lot of times, which is empty. The cross is empty. He's not on a cross anymore. He already died for sins. The propitiation is already done. The payment has already been paid. Then he went to the tomb. But he's not in the tomb anymore. Now he's standing at the right hand of the Father in heaven, making intercession for us. And because he is doing that, we can be daily forgiven of sins and walk in the love of God. And we walk as he walked. And so as you love, you walk as he walked. And that's what it means to mean what it means means. There is no fear in love. Are you afraid that one day you will stand before God and one of these three things will happen to you? Number one, are you afraid that you will stand there and God will read out your sins against you and all the while you will stand there in fear and trembling, wondering whether at the end He will say, but this one belongs to me and He gets to go in anyway? Or are you afraid that one day you will stand before God and as all will do, you will be forced to bow your knee before a holy God and all the while wondering maybe if you should be expecting judgment, maybe even feeling a little reluctant to get down on your knee in front of a holy God because you know what your life was like? Or are you possibly afraid that you will arrive in front of a holy and just and also gracious and merciful God and not actually know in front of whom you stand? Well, here is how to avoid all of those problems. Walk in love. 
Love people. In particular, love inside the church because this was written to the church. Love believers. And in so loving believers, you will be doing what it means to mean what it means, means. You will be loving as Jesus loved. And when you are like Jesus, you will get the results that Jesus got. You may be crucified. You may be martyred. You certainly will be, according to what Jesus says, don't consider it a surprise, my brothers, when you're persecuted because they persecuted me first. You will be persecuted. No good deed goes unpunished in the world. And you will struggle and have suffering. And if you're wise, like they did in Acts chapter 4, after they were beaten and threatened and said never talk about Jesus again, they went out praising that they were worthy to suffer as Jesus had suffered. Here's what you need to do. Unite with Jesus. Try to be like Jesus. Well, what did Jesus do? He is the love of God manifested toward mankind. So be that. The best you can in your skin, in your situation, with your brain, with your talents, with your capabilities, with your Holy Spirit gifts. Be that. Be the love of God manifested toward mankind. And then, and then, there is no fear. There is no fear in love. But perfect love, in other words, love complete, casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And you know it's not talking about your biological brother, right? It's talking about your brother in Christ. And they're annoying. And they think different. And they come from different cultural backgrounds. And sometimes they have different skin colors. They have different situations. Sometimes they have body odor. Sometimes they're tall and you're forced to look up to them. Sometimes they're short and you're forced to look down to them. Sometimes they need help. Sometimes they need encouragement. Sometimes they're hurting. Sometimes they'll drain the life right out of you. Yet, if you cannot love them, you don't love God. That's what it said. Let's read it again just to be sure we get it. 19, we love because he first loved us. If if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. But the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen... By the way, that verse does a beautiful job of proving that everything that isn't love is hate. There's no middle ground. See what it says? For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And right before that, it said, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. To not love your brother is to hate them. To manifest God's love toward them is to walk and abide in God's love and to have no fear when you stand before God. To be as he was is to be where he is for eternity. And the last verse. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. What it means to mean what it means means to love your brother the way God did. Well, that's tough. Jesus gave us the command to love one another. I'm going to be very point blank about a few things. The first thing is, that means you can say no bad word about your brother. Whoa, hold up. What if my brother's doing something bad? You mean I can't say my brother lied when he lied? That's exactly what it means. 
I love my wife. And a couple of times, it's, she made a mistake. And somebody came against her because she made a mistake. And when it came against her, I could tell that she had made a mistake. It was her fault. So, parenthetically, not actually, but so I said to them, yeah, I see she made a mistake. I'll correct her. Don't worry about it. Husbands in the room would go, no, that doesn't actually work, right? That's not how that works. So you say, yeah, I see she made a mistake, so I'll take care of it. I'll fix it. I'll do everything. No. I said, I'll get back with you. Give her a nudge, Tim. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so if you say she made a mistake and I see that to somebody that's not her, that's not love. That's not love to say my wife sucks or my wife's stupid, or my wife made a mistake, even if she didn't mean to. To say, well, she made a mistake, but she didn't mean to. She has a good heart, whatever. It's not, it's not love to make excuses for people. When they screw up, they should own their screw up and repent and turn back to God. And you shouldn't be around the corner talking to, about, to somebody else about it. If you have a bad word to say about a brother, that's not love. Say no bad word. Now, if you have a problem with a brother, we'll get to that in a minute. And then, if you're going to love one another, you should give to one another. You should spend your blood, your sweat, your tears, your money, your food, your car, your house, everything. If we're going to love people, we should show up and love them with all that we have and all that we are. Or maybe you think Jesus only went partway in. You think you're going to show up in heaven without fear before God by being partway in when it says, if we love like Jesus loved, we'll be in for sure. That's what it said. If we are as he is in this world, then when we get there, no fear. You'll be kneeling before God knowing that, yes, this is my moment. Yes, I'm going to heaven for an eternity. This is awesome. If we're only halfway in, that's not what that moment's going to be like. And so we are to give to one another. We are to love one another. If, and I, I go to the flea market. I'm walking around the flea market and I've got all of you in the back of my head and in my heart. And I'm thinking, oh, well, there's something somebody might like. And, or there's something somebody else might like. And I'm, think, I'm thinking about the people in the church. Everyone, everyone that's in this room. Everyone. Chris, everyone. You're, I'm thinking about you like virtually all the time. Every time I'm not thinking about something else, one of y'all is popping into my head. It's like I'm a multiple personality, except I'm not. That's what it's meant to be like. You cannot go about your day without giving of yourself to somebody else in the church. If you're doing that, you're not walking as Jesus walked, which means you're not manifesting what Jesus manifests, which is the love of God. You're not meaning what it means means. You're meaning something else. Whatever it is, you figure it out. Not my problem. But here is how to mean what it means means. You've got to mean it by loving them daily and having no bad word against them. We walk together in the local church. In other words, we use our spiritual gifts. Each one of us figures out what our gifts are. We use them together. And as they interact like muscles and sinew of, of a moving animal, we grow up and we begin to learn what it is that God wants. Based on Ephesians 4, you cannot come to the height of your Christianity. You cannot become as much like Jesus as you possibly can in this life without being in the local church and Bumping up against other people that cause problems and say things that you don't like and feeling out of place and feeling irked at times. And all of that is part of the process of rising to the best you. It's the process that God designed. You got a problem with it? Take it up with Him. Give more and more evidence to what His Word says 
Give more and more credence to what His Word says and less and less to what you think about what it says. Read your Bible. And when you get to the O part, so I think it says this. Then when you get to the I part, write what it means. Not what you think it means. When you're studying your Bible and you're asking God, God, show me what this means. And then when God shows you what it means, most of the time it's what's going to happen. You go, ooh, that hurts a little bit. I'm going to have to adjust to that. I'm going to take that into account. Which is also why we're not reading our Bibles. Because we have all these opinions about everything. And we don't want to read the Bible because the Bible is about the love of Jesus Christ, which is God's love manifested. And we will learn very quickly that there's only one way to live this life with the abundant life that God has promised and the end that God has promised. And that is to love one another. Literally the only way it works. But we'd rather go on with our excuses and our ideas and our opinions and what our parents taught us to do and the way our family operates and the way my employer wants it to go or the way my excuses allow me to weave through life without any vast overreaching commitment to anyone. And we say, well, as far as those other believers go, we have irreconcilable differences. And we divorce ourselves from other believers who really we are supposed to love undying unending like Jesus did. But there will be sin. There will be problems. There will be consequences. You're going to run into a brother whom you or a sister whom you love and they're not doing what God would want them to do and you're going to have to talk to them because what it means to mean what it means means includes accountability. You can't let someone who professes to be a believer in Jesus Christ continue in their sin without correcting them, without showing up and telling them that what they're doing is sin because A, they may not know it. B, they may be trapped and they may need you to rebuke some evil spirit or to bring some truth into their life so they can actually be free. That's why Jesus told that parable in Matthew 18. Are you think I'm talking about the accountability parable? I'm talking about the one where he said the 99 sheep are left and he goes after the one. Or did you think it was only Jesus that was being represented in a figurative language about leaving the 99 where they're safe or on the mountain and going after one? No, that's us. How do we know that's us? Because this very verse, these verses right here, call us to love like he loved. That means if we've got 99 safe sheep, it means all the people in the church that aren't bothering you right now, all of them, you don't got nothing to, nothing to worry about. If they need something, you still love them. But otherwise, you don't really got nothing to worry about. The people that are in the church that are bothering you, those are the people that you have to show up and you have to say, look, I think what you're doing is sin. I'm calling you to repent and turn back to God and I'm here to help in any way that I possibly can. Be prepared because they may want to quote back to you some sin that you did. And you say, well, that's okay. I, I hear that. I hear what you're saying. That doesn't diffuse my wanting to come and talk to you today. But I repent of what you're saying. And I'll turn back to the Lord. Now can we deal with the thing I came to talk to you about? And we can together become something that honors God. That's Matthew 18, accountability. But you've got to go. You've got to leave the other sheep and go after them. The best Christian, the best follower of Jesus that you can be, you cannot be, wait for this, the best Christian or best follower of Jesus you can be, you cannot be, without turning back from sin, the person that you despise the most on this earth. What? 
Your success in the kingdom of God is linked to your willingness to go to people who have done what you know is sin or wrong or you can't stand or talked about you behind your back, they frustrated you in some way, they did something you didn't like, they failed to show up, they failed to give, whatever, and you go to them and you say, look, I think what you're doing is sin. I think you should repent and turn to God and do it right. And when they do, according to Matthew 18, you will have gained your brother or sister. But you can't be the embodiment of Jesus. Who did Jesus die for? He literally died for the people who were crucifying him. He died for the people who whipped him the night before. He died for the disciples who would deny him to a man. Every single one of them. How can we love people the way Jesus loved people if we can't go after the person that offends us the most and try to bring them back to the Lord? The answer is we can't. To love one another... What it means to mean, but what it means means is to love one another, have no bad word to say about one another, to give to one another, to work together in the local church, exercising all of our gifts, to give more and more credence to what his word says and less and less to what our ideas are or what we think about it, and to practice accountability with every believer who is struggling and draw them back into the kingdom of God fullfold. We mean to never forget what he did. That's what we mean when we say what it means to mean what what it means means. We mean to never forget what he did, but I submit to you at any moment in time, if you can say, to, if you can say about somebody, I'm going to dismiss that person. What happens at the end of Matthew 18 accountability, by the way? You treat that person as a, a heathen or a tax collector, right? Does that mean you hate them? No, we're not a people of hate. It means you try to win them to the Lord. So now you relegated them into a category of needing to be one to the Lord. That's what you did. And so you love them, trying to love them to the Lord. You don't love them the same way you love the church because we have a push, a requirement. But we have people that we want to want to come to Christ. And we love them to Christ if we can. Right? And so it should hurt. It should ache. We've had to do that a number of times in our church. I've had to do it a number of times in my life. And the truth is, most of the time, people don't come before the church. They don't plead their case because they know they're in sin. And they go through Matthew 18 accountability and they get to the point where it would come in front of the church and it never winds up from the church because they just resign their membership and they go away. And I weep. I cry and make my pillow wet sometimes, crying over people who have left because I know that they're living in sin. They're not doing what God would have them to do. And I'm not being figurative when I say I'm being literal. And how can you do that? How can you dismiss somebody out of your life? If you love them, if you truly love them, how can you dismiss them out of your life? Did Jesus do that? No, Jesus said, they won't come to you, God. They're going to need a manifestation of the true love of God. They need a real act, a real powerful moment, a moment which nobody can deny in all history. They need someone to pay this price that no one can pay. I'll do it. And that's what he did. And when we are the way he is, while we're living here, that's when there is no fear before God. That's when we know we'll make it in. That's when we know God will take care of us. That's when we become the embodiment of His love on the earth. We mean to never forget what He did, but every time someone really bothers us and we don't want to deal with them, we exactly forget what He did. That's our go-to defense. And it's not acceptable. Because for God, the moment of Jesus' death was a blink of an eye ago. He's never going to forget. God was remembering the sacrifice of Jesus 200 years before Jesus was born. 
And he calls us not to forget. You must not, we say we'll not forget. And I'm, I'm saying to you that every opportunity to love someone comes up, you must not forget what he did for you and what it means to us and what it means to all mankind who believe and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We must live for the one who died for us and that is to live to be the embodiment of God's love. What it means, Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for sins. What what it means means His love manifested toward us means we must love one another. What it means to mean what it means. You practice accountability. You live in the church. You serve God and you love one another daily. Giving. Never with a cross word about somebody. And when somebody offends, you practice accountability and you call them back to God. And if they refuse and they're walking away, you may need to get down on the floor with tears in your eyes and hold on to their pant leg and beg them and say, no, please don't run away from God. No, please don't continue in sin. No, please don't continue to live the way you think you should live, but rather accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and live the way He would. Because you know what? If they walk away from you and they no longer profess to be a Christian, they probably never were in the first place. And if they live the rest of their life that way, they're going to burn in hell for eternity. And maybe you just don't realize exactly how bad that is. Maybe we don't realize how bad it is. When we look at the cross, we realize how bad it must be. Oh, but wait, our go-to defense is to forget the cross in that moment. So instead of being on the floor, holding onto their pant leg, begging them not to walk away from God, we're going, yeah, well, whatever, I didn't need you anyway. That's not the way we do it around here. I'm not putting up with your crap. And in that moment, we forget that Jesus Christ put up with our crap on the cross. A couple of quick references by way of conclusion. One is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll tell you the story. We're not going to go there and read it. In Corinth, there were believers that started to have problems with each other and they started suing each other in a court of law. They made their, their problems very public. Paul ends basically telling them that they were not supposed to do that. That's not loving toward one another. And what he says is this. He says, wouldn't you rather be defrauded than go to court against your brother in Christ? A little subparagraph here. Suing another Christian is not loving. That's not an example of love. So he says, wouldn't you rather have been defrauded than to sue them? He said, but actually it's the other way around. By suing them, wait for it, you defraud them and take from them that which you want. You see? Here's what's going on in the world. This is the way the world does it. Well, so-and-so said or did, and so now you should think of them this certain way. Meanwhile, the other person saying, yeah, well, so-and-so said or did, and you should think of them in this certain way. And it becomes a vicious web of one person talking about another. This is the funny thing about politics is, I can't tell you who's good and who isn't. You can watch and listen to everything. Right now, there's a huge congressional uh, House of Representatives uh, investigation has been going on for a while, but it's going to get really big now because the Republicans are going to have the majority. They've been looking into the political nature of the FBI and how the FBI has been being used to attack people and investigate them and everything else for the benefits of a certain political party or another on a different day, depending on whoever's in charge at a given time. Is it true? I don't know if it's true. 
And I don't even know if we'll ever know it's true. Right? We got the evidence. You go into a court of law, you sit in a jury box, and all the evidence is made as to whether or not somebody's guilty. You're going to hear the defending attorney today make evidence how somebody else might have committed the crime. Here are the evidence how this person certainly didn't do it. And then you're going to hear the uh, district attorney make evidence why this person certainly committed the crime. And then in the end, you're going to review all the evidence and then decide, wait for it, beyond a reasonable doubt. Why do we have that? Because as long as you are alive, there is literally, wait for it, only one thing you can ever know in absolute entirety. Only one. And that it is God loves you and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you. You can think that gravity works a certain way. But I can stand here today and I can scientifically prove to you it doesn't work the way you think it works. Not only that, now scientists are saying, we don't think gravity works the way we think it works. Einstein wrote this cool theory about how gravity works, and all science since then has been based on that. And now, because they're experimenting on black holes in outer space, they've determined that his theory is almost certainly incorrect. After 50 to 100 years of all science being based on the theory, there is really only one thing you can know with absolute certainty. And it is. What it means? Is it what what it means means? No. Is it what it means to mean what it means means? Yep. That's it. Love one another. It all boils down to that. You may have to figure out in your own particular context how to do that. Some people have had to give up so much. Missionaries. Great Southern Baptist missionary who came home from the mission field sick, terrible sick, and never lived a healthy day in their life again because they had given their food away day after day after day to the starving orphans around them. Never lived a healthy day in their life again. You're worried about, we're worried about whether we can pay our streaming fee bills or keep our lights on or have a nice house or keep our car running. There are people in the world who haven't eaten. We. Not by their choice. They just don't have access to food. People in the world that the only water source they have is polluted with human feces. You're going, man, I gotta have a soda or a monster drink. And the only thing they have to drink is water polluted with other people's poop. It's time we started realizing that Jesus Christ was the embodiment of God's love toward us and we must love that way. At the least, at the very least in the church, because if you don't love that way in the church, if you don't love, if we don't love each other that way, according to what the Bible said, we are not His. And I've got a problem with that. Because a lot of times when I look at what it means to mean what what it means means. I think people are just stopping at what it means. They just want to believe that God loves them. Just want to believe that everything's going to be okay and it's up to them to figure out a way to be as happy and as wealthy and as rich and work out all their problems just like anybody else. But that's not what it's about. What it means to mean what what it means means 
is to be the embodiment of God's love toward one another. Someone has hurt you. Forgive them immediately. And then if what they did was sin, call them to account. Go and talk to them and beg them to repent. Not ask them, don't you think it's sin? That's, that's my way of doing it because I'm scared to death when I try to confront somebody and I'm learning that's not the way to do it. You say, look, but I love you. I'm begging you to have something different for yourself. You turn to God. You do what's right. The best you know how. Don't you do that? And never have a cross word to say about anybody and show up and give and work together as the church. And we'll learn lots of methods and means. But it comes down to this. If whatever we're doing is not expressing the love of God like Jesus did, then our confidence is going to be lacking before the Lord. And we don't want that. We want to know that the new deal is ours. Jesus wants it this way. He wants you to own it. He's literally bought you a brand new vehicle to carry you from here into eternity. And he wants to give you the keys, the ownership of that vehicle. And then you can share that vehicle with anyone else. And if you won't, then maybe you don't believe in the power of what Jesus did, in the effectual nature of God's love toward mankind. You're here today, and you say, well, you know, God loves me, and that's great. But what what of it? Well, God loves you, and because of that, he said, you're to love others. So, okay, well, what of it? What does that look like exactly? Well, today we've talked about that. And if you've not loved others the way we've been talking about, then you need to repent. I had to. You need to repent and decide, I'm going to love others the best I can in my situation with all that I'm given the way Jesus loved others. And it begins in the church. And if you can't do it with other people who are trying to live for Jesus, you're not going to do it with people that aren't. The further away from people, further away from God people get, the harder it is going to be to love them. That's the general rule. And it's really hard to love people who claim to be following the Lord and are walking in sin. And for that, we have Matthew 18 accountability. You go to them and talk to them and try to win them back to God. And if they don't listen, then you take somebody else with you and you try again. And they still don't listen. You bring them for the church. And if they still don't listen, then they're removed from the church. And it doesn't mean we stop loving them, but it does change the way we love them. At that point, we're trying to love them to accept Jesus. But everybody that's inside the church in here, we're trying to, if you are indeed saved, we're trying to live together so that we can know the will of our God and live the way he would have us to and eventually arrive in eternity with him. Working together to be followers. Working together to be the church. Do you commit yourself to that today? If you're here today and you say, look, I've not accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord. That means he tells me what to do. And I do it. And my Savior means he pays the price for my sins. If you've not done that, would you do that today? You say, hey, I hear you. I get it. Jesus, God loves me, and Jesus is really the embodiment of that love toward me. So I, I want to accept God's love. Would you do that? And if so, then as we sing this song, then you walk forward. You can put your hand in my hand or just stand in front of me and just say, I've come today to let everybody, you and everyone else, know that I believe in Jesus. I want to serve him for the rest of my days. But if you already have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you realize you've not been loving the way God would have you to love, then you repent. You can write where you're standing, or you can come publicly if you think you need to, if you think that would be the best way to do it. And just say, look, that's me. I realize I've not been loving the way I'm supposed to be.
I found this in my cellar. That that was not only so, but that on top of that, I didn't really know how to love the way I was supposed to. Which is why I so much love learning about what it means to me what what it means to me. We're going to sing one final song. This is going to conclude our services together today, but the Lord's pressing on your heart to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, be baptized, or join the church, or start a ministry, do something you know you're supposed to do, whatever it might be. Or you just need to repent of not being loving. If that's what it is, then you come or let me know wherever you are. I'll call on you in the ministry. Would you stand with us and sing this song? We're going to sing We Fall Down.